and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a history of the right-wing grift machine, now that the big lie has become the big grift, and speak with Rick Perlstein, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America, and Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus. He is currently a contributing editor and board member of In These Times magazine, and his latest book is Reaganland, America's Right Turn 1976 to 1980, and we will discuss how the January 6th committee has established the direct connection between the Republican Party's paramilitary wing and parliamentary wings as Trump's GOP leads the country towards fascism. Then, with the Supreme Court poised to take away women's reproductive rights, gun safety rights in blue states, environmental protection to deal with global warming, and voting rights empowering voter suppression by partisan Republican legislatures, we'll look into how the American majority can thwart the tyranny of the minority. Joining us is Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. He has written several books in the fields of European intellectual history, human rights history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and his latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Then finally, with the richest man in the world about to own an influential social media platform now throwing his support behind Governor DeSantis, we will speak with Michael Bender, a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics, and public opinion. He's the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida, and we will discuss the presidential ambitions of Florida's grievance governor. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Rick Perlstein, who's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America, a New York Times bestseller, picked as one of the best nonfiction books of 2007 by over a dozen publications, and Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus, which won the 2001 Los Angeles Times Book Award for History and appeared on the best books of the year list for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Chicago Tribune. He's currently a contributing editor and board member of In These Times magazines, and his latest book is Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rick Perlstein. Hi, great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And in terms of America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980, what would you describe what's happening now? It's got to be a far, far right turn, right? Yeah, I like to say that 
uh, Donald Trump and the people associated with him, uh, and of course, in turn, the entire Republican Party quite nearly, takes all things that have we've seen in the past in Republican politics, you know, going back to the era of Goldwater and can't find a precedent for. But by the same token, uh, they've pretty much, you know, taken over the entire institution of the party and all of its messaging and all of its policy apparatus and all of its nasty habits. So what we're learning, of course, from this January 6th committee um, is that there is this right-wing grift machine where one of the congresswomen, Giselle Lofkin, referred to it not only as, is there the big lie, there's the big ripoff. Actually, uh, Rick, I was driving a week or so ago, driving down from San Francisco through the center of California on Highway 5, which is basically, you know, a red state. I was driving through in the middle of a blue state, and I heard uh, Steve Bannon on Christian radio, which is, of course, a front for right-wing politics, touting that we're heading into stagflation, and therefore you have to buy gold from some shady outfit he was shilling for. So you've got this situation with with Trump basically ripping off the MAGA people, but the most flagrant uh, example surely was Steve Bannon, who ripped off the MAGA people over the building the wall. Uh, he pocketed over a million dollars. The other guys in the scam with him are all being convicted and are facing a jail sentence, and he was pardoned by Trump. So it's all pretty flagrant, but do you think that the committee can get that message through to the MAGA people that they're being taken advantage of? Well, that's unfortunately not how people who are susceptible to being cons, uh, being conned, think. It's it's not how their mind works. Uh, they separate the world into a friend and enemy, which is, of course, a basic structure in right-wing political thinking. And if a friend says something, uh, that means it's true. And if an enemy says something, that means it's false. Uh, you know, this week is the 50th anniversary of, you know, the Watergate break-in. And we saw this style of politics perfected by Richard Nixon. Um, he got reelected with 49 states, despite the fact that, you know, he was involved in a criminal conspiracy that was perfectly obvious it was right there in the washington post so if you wanted to absorb that fact you could um you could or you could choose to willfully ignore it and that sort of willful ignorance is the kind of thing we're talking about uh if it's coming from a bunch of democrats it must be a lie designed to destroy their 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 protector and that means you know in this style of thinking uh to which people who vote for right-wing politicians have proven themselves so susceptible that they're trying to destroy you. It's all about kind of core psychological identities. And facts are very impervious when it comes to those kind of core existential senses of your very self and your well-being. Well, we saw in the primaries that took place on Tuesday, a lot of um, MAGA people and election deniers, uh, stop the steal folks, were elected who Trump supported. Uh, there is a sort of method to his madness here. If you can take $250 million from the Umaga folks 
on a lie which your own top advisors told you was a complete lie and total nonsense. And nevertheless, you float this lie, it metastasizes into a bedrock uh, Republican belief, and you shake $250 million out of them that doesn't go to an official election defense fund as advertised, but actually essentially goes into Trump's pockets. That is a war chest that he's clearly using, isn't is he not, to intimidate Republican candidates in these primaries from going along with him. Otherwise, they face certain death. Which is where you start to shade into fascism, right? The idea that this kind of strong man is going to use his power, and his power being this kind of weaponized cadre of fanatical followers to terrify them, to intimidate them, to get them to pursue political courses that they might not otherwise under fear of political death. And don't also forget that a lot of these people are armed. And a lot of these people are armed specifically because they've been told, you know, not just by Trump, but also by back in the days of Ronald Reagan, uh, that the Second Amendment is for protecting themselves from political tyrants, right? So if Donald Trump says someone is a political tyrant, uh, they are under uh, a threat not only to their political career, but their actual lives. And we saw that in Wisconsin, where uh, a Trump fanatic uh, was caught before he could um, murder a judge who had been involved in his own case. But he also had a hit list that included not only the uh, Democratic governors of Wisconsin and Michigan, but uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, whom Donald Trump has declared a rhino or an enemy. And again, I'm speaking with Rick Perlstein, who's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fraction of America, which was a New York Times bestseller, and uh, Before the Storm, Barry Goldmoder and the Unmaking of the American Consensus. And he's currently a contributing editor and board member of In These Times magazines. And his latest book is Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. So let's talk about how grifting is not entirely in the province of Trump and Stephen Bannon, but there's a a history of it within the Republican Party. So how far do you want to go back to Nixon or (laughs) Reagan? Do you mind if I go back to the 1920s and the Ku Klux Klan? (laughs) Uh, Go ahead. It's actually um, quite relevant uh, that when the the Klan was revived in the 1920s, you know, of course, we we know it as this 1860s and 1870s post-Civil War kind of paramilitary of the defeated Confederacy. It was um, drummed up by a publicist, by a businessman who used it to make money. And he did two things that were absolutely brilliant that kind of made him the 1920s version of Donald Trump. He said you had to buy your clan robes directly from them, right, from the company, and design them in a specific way that they couldn't be sewn at home because a lot of people obviously made their clothes at home. And he set it up as a pyramid scheme such that uh, every person who recruited someone had uh, uh, got money, but then they had to kick money up the chain. So the people who were the first members maybe made some money, but the further down the chain they were, the less likely they were to make money. And we all, you know, know how pyramid schemes work, right? Like Amway, and we know that, you know, 98% of the people who engage in them, overwhelmingly, are Republicans and conservatives, um, lose money. 
and they're sold a bill of goods uh, that basically promises them a new Jerusalem, riches, fame, fortune, uh, just like Donald Trump promises the same for his supporters uh, in exchange for their hard-won money. Uh, fast forward to 1964 and Barry Goldwater's campaign, and the guy who was kind of the modern master of this, a guy named Richard Vigory, collected all the names of Barry Goldwater donors and turned it into his master mailing list that he used all through the 1970s to kind of market schemes about liberals taking away their liberty. Uh, most of that went for political purposes, right? Those are mainly for political campaigns and political candidates, but the campaigns and candidates got very little money and, and, and Richard Vigory got very, very rich. And the point of this was um, the way he was able to get rich was to basically create this kind of diabolical enemy, the liberals, that they could defeat uh, by sending him their money. And that was a lot like, you know, the televangelists of the period who say, you know, God will send you to heaven uh, if you send my ministry money. So this is all kind of part of a culture on the right that's gathered steam. And Ray Ronald Reagan is not innocent of this either. Uh, do you remember Laetriel, the fake cancer cure made from apricot seeds that, you know, actually killed people? And people went down to Mexico to get very similar to kind of today's, you know, vitamin supplements and miracle cures. Uh, in Ronald Reagan's political newsletter in 1978, you know, he said the federal government shouldn't be um, regulating Laetriel, that, you know, this is just the big bad liberals trying to stand in the way of uh, a miraculous cure that can end cancer. So it's really kind of baked into Republican culture. And one of the real scandals isn't just, you know, that Donald Trump is stealing $250 million from his supporters, but that none of us are learning about it until now. Uh, the real scandal is that the mainstream media um, never reports on this stuff and that the Democrats never kind of raised it to the level of congressional hearings until just this week. Uh, but I'm gratified to have them, you know, in my corner. I've been writing about this stuff since 2007. And uh, I think that it really helps focus our fight against the conservative takeover of the Republican Party as, you know, an existential threat to the Constitution and our most basic liberties. So objectively and without overheated rhetoric, it would seem clear uh, that we are heading into a kind of fascist state and that Donald Trump, who controls the GOP, is basically going to create a one-party state. And the Republican establishment has made it clear that they see a role model in the fascist leader in Hungary, Orban. Right. Um, and it would seem that uh, this is something that Democrats should be talking about. I mean, you've made the point in the interview that you did uh, with... Greg Sargent in the Washington Post, the ugly truth about right-wing grift machine has been revealed. You say one of the canny things that the January 6th Select Committee is doing is establishing a direct link between the Republican Party's paramilitary wing and its parliamentary wing. Now, I haven't heard that before, but that really crystallizes the reality of the stormtroopers uh, mm -hmm. on January the 6th and how they were the vanguard for the mob that Trump sent to give them the bodies to storm the Capitol after they'd done the reconnaissance. But that kind of compact between the the paramilitary wing and the parliamentary wing continues, does it not? And again, this has more than a whiff of fascism. It does, but now 
to a much greater degree than we could even say a few weeks ago, this has been elevated in the national consciousness. And this really is the kind of thing, you know, I, I talk about very dark stuff and I try not to flinch from a very astringent, you know, kind of depiction of what we're facing, but I'm also pretty much a democratic optimist. This really is the kind of thing for which sunlight is the best disinfectant. And a lot of this stuff has been underground until now. And, you know, 20 million people watched the hearings uh, in prime time last week. They had wonderful hearings last week. They're going to have more hearings in which they're going to rope in the Justice Department. And, you know, that's real progress. And it's going to be very hard for the Democratic Party to kind of go back from this once they've kind of named the enemy in that kind of striking terms. So can the Democrats, you know, counter this perfect storm of economic gloom? Going back to Carville's adage, of it's the economy, stupid. They're going to have a really tough time in November. It's and going to be tough, but the, the economic coverage is terrible too, right? And at the same time as we're facing record inflation, we're also enjoying record job growth, right? So, you know, a more accurate media portrayal of what we're actually dealing with shows that we're actually not in nearly as dire a state as we're told in the mainstream media. So that also is a window of hope. And and you've got the abortion rights. I mean, the, That's the right. Supreme Court is about to take away abortion rights. They're about to take right. away environmental protection. It's been an I mean, you name it. Um, yeah. One who's had a who who who's who's had friends who have you know been an entrepreneur or opened a restaurant know that the most dangerous thing for a business is to bite off more than they can chew, right? To overplay their hand, and the Republicans, especially with the abortion thing, have really overplayed their hand. They've walked right into a minefield into an issue that's overwhelmingly popular with the American people, and same with the gun control issue. You know, 90% approval of background checks. So, you know, fortunately, uh, these people who are not very smart, as, you know, uh, um, as Deep Throat said and all the president's men, um, might fall victim to their own idiocy. And just in the last minute then, in terms of optimism, do you see anybody or, or Biden himself being able to seize this narrative, this new narrative, in the face of the usual loss of uh, the government in power in the, in a midterm. I mean, the idea that the House Judiciary Committee could be led by Jim Jordan is such a frightening prospect. But, you know, we are really facing, you know, a pretty bleak prospect unless the Democrats can get their act together and come up with a powerful narrative and rebuke that historical trend. Ian, you said it much better than I could. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> right. And there's some good Democrats in Washington. There's all many, many terrible ones, too. But, uh, you know, as always, you know, um, the more citizen participation on the side of the good guys, the better. So, you know, get involved in your local Democratic Party. And that's, you know, a very important part of the answer. Well, Rick Pelsey, and I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Rick Pelstein, who's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America, and Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus. He is currently a contributing editor and board member of In These Times magazine, and his latest book is Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. 
we're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how the American majority can thwart the tyranny of the minority. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. He's written several books in the fields of European intellectual history, human rights history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights and History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. And his latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Samuel Moyne. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, you're quoted in an article in the Washington Post by Paul Waldman and Greg Sargent, how aggressively should liberals attack the Supreme Court? And the article begins, and let me just quickly read the first paragraph. At any moment, the Supreme Court could hand down decisions stating that women have no constitutional rights to an abortion, that states are severely restricted in how they can regulate guns amid mounting carnage, and that the Environmental Protection Agency has limited authority to regulate greenhouse gases in service of securing a habitable planet. And of course, you could add to that federal voting rights will be watered down and the state's ability to green light voter suppression with Republican legislatures will be enhanced. So this is a pretty alarming picture, isn't it, that we're facing? It's incredibly alarming, Ian. I, you know, the, the, the court has been trending right since Richard Nixon began uh, to put uh, conservative justices on to answer Earl Warren's liberal court. But we're now at a moment of crisis since Donald Trump has appointed three jurists who are having a, a very large effect on our country's law. So what do you make of this uh, group that's been set up called Take Back the Court? And they believe that the Republican tactics such as stealing Merrick Garland's seat and giving it to Gorsuch have increased and emphasized and exacerbated the counter-majority features of our system, both by empowering a right-wing court majority to enact its policy preferences by speciously striking down legislation and by enabling the courts to greenlight voter suppression and other anti-democratic GOP state laws. So is there something in their tactics or can you explain further what they might have in mind, how Democrats can organize to buttress the power of this entrenched supermajority on the right controlling the courts? Well, so for full disclosure, I've been on the advisory board of Take Back the Court from the beginning. I have a slightly different diagnosis that I think goes further um, and a slightly different cure. But I, I agree with the group uh, that the you know Washington Post article covers that we're in crisis and there's a systemic problem um, with the court. I don't think it's just that. Um, Republicans have taken it over. 
Um, although it's true as 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 you know the the group and many other groups uh, insist that you know the president and Senate are not um, majoritarian institutions. You know, the president is elected not by a national vote, but by the electoral college, but he gets to appoint new justices. And the Senate, even worse, is privileging small states, and yet it gets to approve uh, those justices once the president nominates them. So in a way, the Supreme Court intensifies the minority rule features of the Constitution and those have come into play in a very big way when you've got a certain configuration uh, of voters with Democrats in you know, blue states and Republicans in those smaller red states. Um, and the president is elected without a majority of the national vote. But the truth is that you know, the diagnosis ought to go deeper because the institution itself, even when it's staffed by um, liberals um, that many liberal groups prefer um, is counter-majoritarian. It decides on the content of the law no matter what the current majority of Americans think. And I think that's wrong. I think we ought to have laws that the majority supports, especially when um, the court hasn't been acting to defend the vulnerable and weak kinds of minorities, but instead the wrong minorities, the corporate, uh, the gun toting, uh, and those who really want to oppress, uh, you know, especially women with the, you know, opposition to abortion. So if that's your diagnosis, then the cure is not just getting our friends back in high places like in the old days, so that the Supreme Court could reach the right views. Because the problem is that it's Congress that ought to be in charge of the law, not the courts in the first place. And so I've backed a slightly different set of remedies um, that are about transferring power back to Congress and so that the Supreme Court doesn't get to make up the law. And again, I'm speaking with Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. He has written several books in the fields of European intellectual history, human rights history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. And his latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Well, isn't the Supreme Court about to take away much of the prerogatives of the Congress in terms of regulating. They've already gone after OSHA and the CDC, and they're going to be going after the EPA. The expectation is that they're going to strike down the EPA's ability, the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate the clean water and clean air, which will make it impossible to deal with global warming. In other words, government expertise itself, anything that has the word public in it, is being taken away from the expertise that government departments have and handed over to this unelected branch. Absolutely right. You know, um, the the really frightening um, set of cases, which are not much talked about, uh, involve an, an invented doctrine 
uh, that the court first, you know, flirted with in in the time it was opposing the New Deal, but has revived in a big way in the past 10 years. Um, it's called the non-delegation doctrine. And basically, it, it, it says that the administrative state as a whole is unconstitutional uh, on the grounds that it it the legislature shouldn't be allowed to transfer its own power to the alphabet soup of experts uh, in, in the federal agencies. Now, what's devious about that uh, is that the doctrine is really supposedly about it restoring power to Congress, um, you know, its legislative authority. But the reality is it's it's actually about judges condemning the state that we've built in the 20th century, which was a state that in which experts who know things that legislatures don't can make the call about um, things that they, you know, do know better than the average citizen about while leaving room for the Congress to give it directions. Um, So this is a very scary development because, you know, what we know as the American government could be cut to shreds by the Supreme Court in the coming year or two. And I think that would have much bigger ramifications, honestly, than any of its toxic decisions people are worried about in this current term. And an example of that is, of course, this unqualified federal judge appointed by Trump down in Florida who who struck down the mask mandate at the same time these right-wing courts want the CDC's restrictions on immigrants coming in and claiming asylum based upon COVID restrictions. So, Correct, correct. Very, so, very... so what we're seeing... Go ahead. No, sorry, sorry, Ian. Well, so what we're seeing, I think what we should see in all of this is that, you know, we were taught in civics class that judges uh, uh, are are not ideologues one way or the other. And they they interpret the law rather than insert their own politics. And this is turning out to be unbelievable Uh, and you know, where I differ from a lot of, you know, people on on among liberals and progressives is that it's not like liberal and progressive judges are apolitical. It's that we just like their politics. If, you know, we condemn the reactionaries that, you know, populate the courts now. And so I think the lesson to draw is that law is political and we need to kind of see it as, you know, part of the terrain of struggle and not let judges, you know, hiding behind the law um, make policy. And that's what the, you know, the, tr- the Trumpified judiciary these days is so nakedly doing. Um, and the real debate is not whether that's happening, but what's, what's the best way to rethink the law in this country, and in particular, the power that judges wield to rewrite it. So would the first step then, Samuel Moyne, be to get rid of this notion, this absurdity that these uh, 
these conservative judges, particularly the super majority on the Supreme Court, are anything but uh, political activists in robes. I think all judges are. You know, they they're not free from uh, idea ideology, and so we shouldn't be surprised that that's true of right wing judges. And you know, the question is is not whether the wrong people are up on the bench, but how much power should judges in general enjoy? Um, in particular, should they have the power to overturn the administrative state to invalidate? you know, laws that have a congressional majority, uh, should they, you know, um, have the ability to second guess, uh, the, the Congress when there are already so many veto points in passing laws in the first place, given the minoritarian presidency and Senate and so forth. And I think the answer to all those questions is no, but absolutely. I think the cat's out of the bag. And we can see in these right-wing judges that uh, the law is not blind. It is what the judges, you know, are appointed there to say it is. So in the last few minutes, then, Samuel Moyne, let's talk about what the majority in this country can do to turn back the tyranny of the minority. There's been suggestions, of course, of expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court and also having term limits for justices. How do you come down? Well, term limits is is the most obvious um, and um, remedy just because so it's it's been talked about for a while. The United States is so out of step in giving its judges life tenure compared to other countries. And people on the left and right can kind of agree about term limits. But you know, part of the reason is that term limits don't really affect the basic problem, um, which is that it's not judges, but the judiciary that wields, you know, too much power, unaccountable power. So um, there there are proposals, which I don't necessarily um, reject to kind of undo Mitch McConnell's damage by, um, you know, counterpacking. If we say that, you know, his choices during the Trump years were actually the first time that um, the court was packed lately, then maybe the remedy is to pack it again. Um, Now, there's a little worry there I have that if the Democrats do so, they're just inviting, you know, a, a, you know, cycle of vengeance where when, you know, the Republicans have power next time, they'll raise the number of justices and so forth. That's why, in general, I favor a different set of remedies that I call disempowering remedies. And the basic idea is make the court weaker. Um, And, you know, one example of this is jurisdiction stripping, uh, which is basically Congress saying that the Supreme Court can't invalidate Um, the laws that it passes. For example, if the Congress decided to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, it came within one vote in the Senate of doing so um, the other day to provide abortion rights in federal statute. Well, you could add a writer to that law saying that the Supreme Court couldn't uh, junk the law. Um, There's another kind of parallel solution called the supermajority rule. Right now, it, it requires a bare majority of justices, five of nine, to invalidate or rewrite 
federal law. And, you know, you could say, well, it ought to require seven. Um, since, again, you're, you're, you, what they're saying in those cases is that the Constitution forbids Congress from acting. Well, it ought to be absolutely clear that that's the case. So maybe we ought to require all nine to agree or eight or seven, not just five. And then there's the possibility, third, of legislative override. It's not clear from the Constitution that the Supreme Court should have the last word about what's constitutional. And, you know, it could be we let the Supreme Court, you know, take its turn and give its view on that uh, matter, but that in the end, the Congress might want to keep the law that the Supreme Court tried to junk. Well, I don't know that there's any political likelihood of uh, the Democrats getting the opportunity to stack the court, certainly as we get towards November, when the the House is likely to go into Republican hands. And of all people, Jim Jordan will be the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. Then if the Republicans take the Senate, if there is a vacancy on the Supreme Court, wouldn't the majority leader McConnell then do exactly what he did with Merrick Garland and basically steal another seat from uh, the Democrats? You know, assuming that a Democrat, you know, dies or retires, you know, uh, in when McConnell's in charge. So absolutely, if the Republicans keep winning in a narrowly divided country, they will continue to control the court and, you know, reform is not possible. Although, in fairness, my um, arguments are ones that conservatives made for years in response to a liberal court. Um, But I don't think we should, you know, um, like, you know, conclude that these reforms are unimaginable. Um, You know, the Women's Health Protection Act was one vote away from passage and the Democrats could run either now or in the future saying, look, if you give us majority control of the Congress, we will um, codify Roe or even get better abortion rights than the Supreme Court ever did. Uh, And they would need to blow up the filibuster to pass a majority law in the Senate that protected abortion rights. But then there would be genuine reform because you would have a contest with the court over who gets to decide, you know, what what the law is and what, in particular, American rights ought to look like. Well, Samuel Moyne, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Samuel Moyne, who's a Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a Professor of History at Yale University. He's written several books in his field of European intellectual history, human rights history, and law, including... The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and his latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to how the richest man in the world, about to own an influential social media platform, is now throwing his support behind Governor DeSantis of Florida. Coming from the field that this ain't exactly real, or it's real, but it ain't exactly Disorder from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay. Democracy is coming to the USA.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Bender, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics, and public opinion. And he's the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Bender. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the richest man in the world has just announced in a tweet that there's going to be a massive red wave in 2022 and that he's leaning towards Governor DeSantis of Florida. So now that you've got the possibility of Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, who's about to own a very important social media platform, Twitter, uh, this has surely got to be a boost for DeSantis, wouldn't you say? Uh, maybe is the short answer. And, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One, uh, speaking about the red wave in 2022, uh, there's not that many seats in Congress that are actually in play. So even, a, a you know, they're going to in all likelihood take control of the House, but the most are going to gobble up is maybe 30 new seats. Historically, that's not a huge number. Uh, the Senate looks close. Uh, they're defending a lot of seats. Uh, they may pick up a couple and they may take control, but this isn't going to be historically an enormous swing in the number of people switching as far as control of Congress goes. Now, as far as DeSantis is concerned, if you look and follow that tweet thread, just a couple of responses after he suggests that he might be supportive of DeSantis, he indicates that he might want to create a super PAC that funds moderate candidates. Well, Ron DeSantis is not a moderate candidate. So I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there, and we'll have to see how this plays out. But but even 30 seats, <laughs> whatever number you throw out, uh, Michael, nobody's suggesting that the Democrats are going to hold onto the House, right? No. I mean, I, I think it would be shocking for the Democrats to, to hold on to the House. I think they have a chance to keep the Senate. Senate seats tend to be a, a little harder to turn for a variety of different reasons. Uh, but I still think, you know, Republicans might be favored, depending upon how all these primaries continue to flesh themselves out. But no, I, mid-year, midterm elections are good for the out party. Uh, that is nothing new in American politics. So DeSantis is 43 years old. Trump just had his 76th birthday on Tuesday. So in 2024, he would be 78. So there is a pretty stark contrast Surely. Yeah, oh, there's a there's a lot of contrast between DeSantis and Trump, even though maybe policy wise you might not see as much, but personality wise, age wise, style wise, they are two very, very different people. Whereas Trump is outgoing and charismatic, DeSantis tends to be more inward, uh, a little more standoffish, and he lacks that charisma that love him or hate him, Donald Trump is good in front of a crowd and good with people. Well, apparently Trump has privately slammed DeSantis as a dull personality with no chance of beating him in 2024. So surely as we get closer in the next couple of years, assuming that Trump stays in the race, and he may well announce relatively soon, there's some expectation, he might announce uh, that he's running for president as a way to sort of head off the January the 6th committee in the sense that 
if they do send a referral to the Justice Department to indict him, you know, it might make it a little more difficult for the Attorney General if Trump's a, a candidate. Uh, obviously, there's an Office of Legal Counsel decision that uh, regulates whether or not you can indict a sitting president, but Trump is no longer a sitting president. But if he's a candidate, maybe that might affect the equation. Have you heard anything to that, uh, any rumors to that effect? All of that is very true. Uh, I, I am more skeptical than most that an indictment would come, whether or not Trump announces his candidacy or not. But but you're absolutely spot on that an announced presidential candidacy changed the equation a little bit. Uh, you, you'd have to think that DOJ and Merrick Garland would, would think long and hard about indicting an active campaign uh, for the presidency. Uh, it, it's different than a former president. Uh, and it's obviously different than an actual sitting president. Uh, but no, I think that would make it even less likely that something like that would occur. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Binder, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics and public opinion. And he's the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. So assuming, uh, Michael, that Trump announces he's running for the presidency to sort of head off the, any possible referral, criminal referral from the January 6th House Committee, won't that certainly change the dynamics in terms of Trump's attitudes towards DeSantis, who's doing well in all of the straw polls, right, that the Republicans have been holding so far? Yeah, no, DeSantis has been the one non-Trump candidate that has polled well and in certain circumstances has gone neck and neck and maybe nudged him out in a couple of polls that were amongst certain groups. Uh, I certainly would not say that if they were to go head to head, that DeSantis would be the favorite uh, in any stretch of the imagination. But that being said, Donald Trump, though he's been rumored to have said X, Y, and Z about DeSantis, he really hasn't said a lot about that about that publicly. You know, he's not slamming him on social media. He's not out there on the news hammering at DeSantis. Uh, if you think back to the presidential primaries in 2015 and 2016, when Trump was going up against, you know, 15 different Republican candidates, he was hammering them, right? Little Marco and, you know, Sleepy Jab. And he was really going after all the candidates. You could expect that to occur come early 2023. Again, we're assuming that DeSantis wins re-election. I, you know, I think he's obviously favored to do so. Uh, and, uh, if, and that's happening in November, right? Yeah, that's in November in Florida. There's a couple of candidates uh, for the Democratic side. Nikki Freed, who's the current agriculture commissioner, and Charlie Crist, former Republican, former governor, uh, current congressman. Uh, he's going to be running. Uh, it, in the Democratic primary. So that's yet to sort itself out. But I think against either of those candidates or heck, even both, uh, Trump is a, uh, I mean, excuse me, DeSantis is a solid favorite for that. So it would lead to speculation. Uh, I think it's safe to say that DeSantis will be running, uh, whether or not Trump decides to run or not. Well, I just mentioned the straw polls in Colorado. DeSantis won the straw poll for 2024, 71% to 67% for Trump. And in uh, Wisconsin last month, DeSantis was 38% to Trump's 32%. But let's um, talk about DeSantis, because 
I find him quite troubling. He does seem to be an authoritarian, very intolerant. Not that Trump's particularly tolerant, but he's he's sort of reckless and all over the place. But DeSantis strikes me as, as a far more clever, smart, intelligent kind of authoritarian than Trump, who's obviously tends to be reckless and um, somewhat erratic. How do you see him? I, I think he's, I mean, I don't want to sit here and say that Ron DeSantis is not a smart guy, right? He's got, you know, great pedigree, Ivy League schools, even though he'll never say that in public, it seems nowadays. But he's much more disciplined than Trump. And his ability to stay on message, focus on message is is very consistent. You don't see the craziness, the insanity on his Twitter feeds or anything of that nature. But you're right in the sense that there's an authoritarianism to him. And it's not just necessarily policies. It's oftentimes the way he runs his inner circle and how he interacts with staff and how he interacts with the press. And those are things that I think are going to show themselves more throughout the rigors of a presidential primary campaign. Listen, I I don't want to pretend that running for governor is easy in a state like Florida. But once you start running for president, things become very different. That spotlight gets brighter. It gets hotter and things get exposed and personality traits. It's really hard to fake it. He is not an extrovert. Uh, campaigning is not easy for him. And you will see that through the rigors of a primary campaign and you will see him retreat to an inner circle and that inner circle tends to get smaller and smaller, which can lead to missteps down the road. So he's apparently nicknamed Governor Grievance, right? Yes. uh, And I think that's a, it's a great nickname for him because one of his, his go-to moves is to be aggrieved about something. Even though in actuality, these issues might not be real in Florida, there's this perceived grievance that he really works on and it can tap into uh, people's fears and anxieties and concerns and he taps into them really well. So he's sort of weaponized his self-style war on wokeism, which in many ways seems to be nakedly cynical because, you know, let's face it, there is not a lot of transgender youths, but he's gone after them as though they were a clear and present danger in a kind of cruel and arbitrary way, banning medical care for transgender youths, and he's gone after LBGTQ rights, etc., and it started a war with Disney. Some of what he's done is... His latest assault is a threat to have child protective services investigate parents who take their children to drag shows. Does he really care about these sort of culture wars issues or is he just throwing this out as red meat to rile up the MAGA crowd? I don't know the answer to that question in in all honesty. Looking at it, it I can't understand how rational people would think that children under the age of 18 struggling with their gender identities are a threat to anybody but themselves. And why you would make life for them harder is beyond me. These kids have suicide rates that are so much higher than everybody else. 
Why you'd want to make their lives more difficult, I simply don't understand. Why you would want to be on the wrong side of the arc of history with discrimination against LGBTQs and, and others, I, I don't personally understand. And he's not a dumb guy, but there are threads of what he's talking about that connects with large chunks of his base, the MAGA base in particular. And he's using it, and he is absolutely one of the more successful governors doing it. And I don't want to pretend like this is just happening in Florida. These things are happening across the country in other states. Abbott's doing it in Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska. There's other places where this is happening. But DeSantis has been very good at going on Fox News and generating national media attention with it. So, you know, they're all going after the primary audience, and that's the power that Trump has over the GOP. You can see that in in, in uh, who's been getting these nominations in the Republican primaries. So is there a distinction in Florida between the primary voters and Republican primary voters and the general voters? I mean, are they all conservative Floridians who vote Republican, obsessed with transgender youth, et cetera? No, um, but Republicans by and large tend to be more supportive of those policies. Majorities of Republicans, you know, all Republicans tend to be supportive of those things. Now, the, but, but Michael, the, in the primary vote is in, definitely different than the general election vote. And there is a more moderate wing in the Republican Party that is less supportive of those things. But in the primary, the folks that participate in these typically low turnout elections tend to be the most extreme because they feel like they have the most invested and they are riled up about these culture issues. But I was, you know, in the absence of anything else, I mean, what other, what substantial policies has this guy put forth? Well, he's really, he, he pretended to be the opposite of Joe Biden when it came to the COVID wars. And the one thing that was ironic about all that is even though DeSantis was saying Florida was open for business. A lot of the local mayors took the hits because the vast majority of Florida was having mask mandates, even though the state didn't have them. Most of the major cities did. That was a big deal for him. And he's put together a couple of really good budgets uh, on the back of a lot of the federal money that we've been that's been accepted from the Biden administration. So he's been able to dole out pet projects to a variety of different uh, members of the legislature that have been supportive of him. So those are good things. And he's hammering at these types of policies that even though they might not impact a great many people, folks look at that and they see that and they see one weird circumstances where a transgender male is, you know, in swimming races or a transgender female is beating other other women, there's a lot of things that somebody can look at and be like, oh, that one person doesn't make sense. But then he strikes on that and he casts these big blankets. And it is very effective at mobilizing and getting ginning up uh, a segment of the society that does turn out to vote in these elections. So just in the last minute, he does strike me, though, as being an authoritarian and, in fact, quite dangerous, possibly because he would be more effective than Trump in moving the country towards a kind of one-party state, which is what the Republicans are up to in terms of voter suppression. And the one thing that I find disturbing about any politician on the left or the right, whether it's Kirsten Sinema, who doesn't want to talk to the press, or Ron DeSantis, who doesn't want to talk to the press. If you don't want to talk to the press, then I think there's a, a real justification to be very suspicious of you. 
And part of the reason that he doesn't want to talk to the press is he's not very good with the press. He doesn't have the ability to work with the press, interact with the press. He's very standoffish and he gets very flustered very easily when he gets what he perceives as being attacked by being asked tough questions. And I think that's going to be a problem. I know everybody thinks he's a shoe in for the Republican nomination. I'm skeptical. I think he has some real flaws once that primary comes underway and we start to see some elections happening and we see him out on the campaign trail every day. I think people are going to be in for a surprise with him. Well, Marco Bender, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Bender, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics, and public opinion. And he's the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me One more light goes on